Hey, Sparks fans. My guest today is responsible for so much of what I love about my favorite music from the 80s. The first time I became aware of David Kendrick was as a 15-year-old, having just discovered Devo and quickly becoming a Devo obsesso. In those days before Spotify and iTunes, a music-hungry teen like myself was stuck having to rummage through used record stores to unearth those harder-to-find albums by whoever was tickling your fancy that year. I came upon an LP of Devo's 1988 album, Total Devo, a mostly overlooked release that came out long after the flowerpot slash energy dome hats of Devo's early MTV period. On the cover, all the guys in the band were standing connected to one another in these weird, leaning, limbs-extended poses that looked like the incredible machine improv game that I used to do with my high school comedy troupe. They were all wearing either red or blue jumpsuits, very Devo thing, and looking in every which direction but toward the camera. Next to Mark Mothersbaugh, there was this blonde dude that I didn't recognize. So I bought the record, and the liner notes told me that this blonde guy was David Kendrick, the new drummer. That name stuck with me, and then years later, when I became a Sparks fan, I lashed on hard to their early 80s trashy, thrashy, crashy New Wave albums. And then I saw that name again, David Kendrick. David's snare-heavy drum sound went a long way in making Sparks albums like Womp That Sucker and Angst In My Pants the New Wave classics that they are today. But he and bandmates Les Boehm and Bob Haig made plenty of vital music in their own right beyond the shadows of various pairs of musical brothers that they happen to be working with. The Gleaming Spires, best known for the 1981 regional hit Are You Ready for the Sex Girls, released three LPs and one EP between 1981 and 1985, and they're all hidden treasures. Hopefully, they'll be less hidden now that they're getting full remasters this year. David has embarked on other musical journeys, of course, as well, such as The Extremophiles and Empire of Fun, and we'll get into those projects a little bit later in the interview. As a member of Sparks, though, few collaborators have contributed as much as he has to the musical legacy of the band. I thank him immensely. I also thank Sparks Inspires fan Podicat for helping arrange this interview. Thanks so much, Pody. And now, please welcome David Kendrick. Uh, what are you up to these days? Well, last year, for the most part, most of my plans, uh, <clears throat> especially live shows, all went to pieces. And I also was lecturing in the library system here on psychedelia and film noir and other interests of mine. And all public stuff collapsed. Um, this year, finally, stuff recordings are starting to come out and some of the work I was doing, I played with a group called Shushu, kind of an experimental noisy band uh, record. I played on called Oh No came out and Were you next doing drums, I, I assume yeah, drums and percussion and, and some, some lyric writing. And next month, um, 
Well, then let's see. I also play in kind of a psychedelic band up in San Francisco, which is we're starting to actually play live shows next month in September. Really? And, That's kind of a ways to go for a few Yeah, uh, we're going, doing a, a, a run of a few shows in New York, kind of try it out, uh, you know, places where it seems under under control. And then surprisingly, but it happened starting this year, uh, a label in California called Omnivore Records um, has decided to put out all of my Gleaming Spires bands uh, records all at one hey. time. All right. You're, you're right ahead of me. <clears throat> I was going to ask you about that because the, a compatriot of yours <clears throat> tipped me uh, uh, to, to that. So what's going on with that? What's what? up with these uh, uh, re-releases for Gleaming well, Spires. Actually, I could show, I just got um, promo copies. There's a <clears throat> very first album. There you go. Spires. You, you and Les, yeah. The second album is uh, Walk on and, uh, What was it called? Uh, Lighted Street. Walk on Well-Lighted Streets. Yeah. And then the third record, uh, which is Welcoming a New Ice Age, which is a <clears throat> dystopian version of the future, which... We went, we went towards cold and it seems to be going towards hot, but uh, that was 1985. So, but there's a lot of dystopia uh, in the air at the moment, but. Well, anyway. we're living in it, right? Yeah. Uh, you guys but also had an EP, right? simultaneously, so. There was yeah. also like another EP that you guys released. They're all included. Yeah, there are two, okay. two other EPs <clears throat> and then a lot of other tracks, some, some. Before that, we had a group called Bates Motel, so there's half a dozen yeah. of those. All the movie tracks we did, which is considerable. We did quite a lot of film stuff. Uh, so each track, each album has like 10 tracks plus that many more bonus. So it's, I think they'll be a pretty good deal. Yeah. And then I'm, hopefully I'm, in 2022, they'll be vinyl. So. Well, I hope so. I'm, 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 I've signed up like. That and I'm getting that right now. Uh, I just found out about it a couple of weeks ago, so oh, cool. that's I'm very happy about that. And uh, I've had uh, "Are You Ready for the Sex Girls" in my mind like all weekend, um, <laughs> <clears throat> and we'll get to that. Um, you made an appearance in the uh, the recent documentary film with Edgar Wright, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. What was yeah. that like? Yeah, How did I go about this. Yeah, I did about six years with them so i was kind of involved for through about five records and yeah quite some time so and i i liked the documentary it's it's exhaustive maybe to someone that doesn't know everything about the group but he edgar wright really knows his the band and mm -hmm. he knows all of the periods uh and it was very um very good questions and you know he's very in knowledgeable about it so for you, talking to Edgar Wright's production company, getting involved in this, was that like a thing? You know, was it something complicated? No, not so much for me. Um, there was quite a lot of uh, prep time. I was talking to the production people and be, I'm in Los Angeles. So we shot, uh, he shot a, a few days with, I mean, a lot of the people he interviewed live here in LA. Uh, so he had a couple of days uh, in a studio very close to where I live and we just set up time. It was really not too involved. I shot, we talked for about two hours, maybe two and a half. And uh, yeah, as I said, he really knew the project and I don't know, I thought it was very 
it was well done and he was very respectful of everyone oh yeah I, yeah i think what he was going for it it worked out really well yeah um i well, always you know the show, there was a live show we all went there not that none of that footage got used but there was what, even what live show? pardon well a what, show what, what, angeles of sparks with the current setup where uh I was talking to Ron and Russell. Anyway, there was more stuff shot than used. Um, actually, the most fun thing he did, I think, and he asked everybody who has ever played with him, uh, and hopefully this will end up like on a DVD extra or something, but he asked everyone what their favorite Sparks story plot line was, like describe your favorite story. And mine was a uh, funny face. Mm. Oh, no more. Yeah, Hedy Lamar, the Lamar, Dr. Lamar story. Yeah. And, uh, Here in Heaven, where it's kind of a a, uh, a double cross at the last minute. They, they're... You, you mentioned uh, Here in Heaven. Obviously, that was not a spark song that you were a part of. That was long before you, you, you came on board. But I also read somewhere that that was a song that you did a cover of with a another band you know pre previous to you know Bates Motel and whatnot um I, right there, and when I was in Illinois before I moved to Los Angeles mm -hmm. I liked Sparks then and I tried to get a cover band there to do I think Talent is an Asset maybe here in heaven those two but I I got them when we first started playing live with yeah. Bates Motel when we became the Sparks band here in heaven we did a few older songs very, yeah. as, soon as, the, as soon as we got popular, we kind of did only our own period. But I got to play Talent as an Asset, Here in Heaven, Hospitality Emperor. You know, I, I kind of pushed for some of my favorite songs with Sparks. Did you feel like the only one involved who even knew who Sparks was or had an attachment to these songs? Um, in Chicago area, yeah, they were definitely sort of a underground uh, commodity i guess you'd say i mean that being said they you know when they toured they would play a reasonable sized place but yeah they were not out of i mean they've always sort of been a uh never fully in front never fully mainstream kind of band and, right and that's been why they've been so good they've each album you know they it's somewhere in the world it's done well enough to get them to the next deal and they're always looking ahead and i think they're their fundamental needs in life are fairly modest. So it's all about their art and continuing it. But I'm very happy they're having a moment right now. It's pretty great to see. Me too. Yeah. So and I'm, Les, Les and I both stay friendly with them and still see them off and on. So that's great. And I, I do want to get to that. Um, if, if you don't mind, Dave, David, do you go by, do you go by Dave? I'm sorry. Like David. I, I, I only know you in print. So. Yeah, David. Uh, <laughs> okay uh so uh can you tell me a little bit of, about growing up in the in the uh, chicago suburbs and to the point uh when you decided that music was going to be your life's work and also that it would be the drums um sure my um my parents were kind of very liberal my mom was a nurse my father was a sculptor uh, so he was kind of an artist in a solitary way. Um, really early on, I was just music-wise an Anglophile from the get-go, like Kinks, Move, Who, that kind of stuff. And I think 
although I never had a formal lesson in my life, I just gravitated towards drums immediately. And in high school, just started playing with some like-minded people. Um, wow. I think in, in my life, I have to say, that was a driving force almost immediately. I, uh, what was? Playing music. I okay. graduated high school. I got a job for a year. I saved up all my money. And then I bought a drum set and a van and I moved into Chicago. And I just, I immediately, my whole path was to just play music, to play full time. And I lived in Chicago in this area called Old Town and played, there were a lot of cover bands. And at this point, this is like 75. You could make a living playing music, but you were doing other people's music. But there were, a lot of people went to clubs to see bands, but mm -hmm. not that much original stuff so you could play 20 nights a month and certain bands were more popular and you could play a little more arcane music or throw in an original song or two but i quickly realized that besides a group called cheap trick there was very few mm -hmm. original bands around mm -hmm. and uh, i kind of got to know them a little bit and i heard about them making the trip out to LA and, you know, they got some action going. And I had a friend who um, lived in Los Angeles and worked for this guy named Kim Fowley. I was going to get to that. Okay. I yeah. knew him in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, his name was Scott Goddard. Anyway, when he was in Los Angeles, he, Kim had made, he had got deals for by this time, the runaways mm -hmm. and another group, the quick, I think. And then um, he was starting a punk rock band. And Scott convinced him the razor blades, right? Razor blades. And Scott convinced him <laughs> to call me up. And Kim Foley called me up, gave me the spiel on the phone, and I quit the band I was in, packed up my van, and I drove to California. It was like destiny calling me on the telephone, and it was going to be had that much faith. Yeah, I mean, that, I, that was that I was realizing at that point that. I wanted to play original stuff and I don't know that I could do that. Like groups I liked were in either New York or California or London. And so it didn't seem like Chicago, although, although I learned my craft there yeah. and played a lot there and I've kept up musical friends there. I, I jumped at the first kind of real offer. Venus and the Razorblades for me fell apart pretty quick, but I stayed in California and, um, kind of started a more of a power pop band called Continental Miniatures, mm -hmm. a record deal pretty quick with London records all over the world. We put out one single, a Dusty Springfield song called Stay A While and it sort of charted. Yeah. And uh, when we started on the album, the, the uh, producer was this guy named Michael Lloyd, who in the sixties actually worked with Kim Fowley on interesting mm, projects. Really? He was involved in, West Coast experimental pop band and smoke, interesting stuff. But by the time 70s rolled around, it was very mainstream pop, like Sean Cassidy, that kind of stuff. And it's not really what we were about. So he didn't really want to push us doing original stuff. So anyway, we got out of that deal, made a different album. Sure. And uh, around that time, I saw Bates Motel and Les kind of saw my group and after- Oh, so they already existed as a band. Yeah, they were around a little before I joined them. Um, I joined- Les, Bob Hogg. Les Bob Haig. Um, Haig, yeah, sorry. <laughs> another guitar player, 
Dave Raves. And uh, they they had played around a bit. And when they needed a new drummer, I jumped at the chance. And Les and I hit it off right away. We liked a lot of writers. You know, we both Paul Bowles and Cormac McCarthy and all, uh-huh. you know, surrealism and film noir crime stuff. So we just got and most importantly for later, uh, we were both espresso drinkers. Okay. So, which well, was rare at, in Los Angeles at the time. Right. Okay. I was going to get to that. Yeah. That's, <laughs> we uh, call that foreshadowing. <laughs> what's that? For, I said, foreshadowing. That foreshadowing. But yes, in, yeah, no, we hit it off and, and, you know, actually started writing songs together too. And uh, I, Bates Motel was pretty popular, but what, we were, what, you know, pardon? I'm sorry. Uh, what was, uh, what was Les's, um, background his father was a in the film industry moved here from hungary uh his mom was a was one of the world experts on lewis carroll so they were very very uh intellectual and and you know both in in uh his dad dad was a producer and uh writer and he actually produced some of the uh Best Noirs, alias Nick Beale and uh, Night Has a Thousand Eyes with Edgar G. Robinson. Mm. Anyway, and then so Les had a little bit of the film writing thing in his blood. Nice. Uh, and we, I don't know, we hit it off and, and but we were finding, it seemed like at that point, everyone was getting signed except Bates Motel. And we started going to the farmer's market, which is this, uh, open air market in Los Angeles. And there was mm-hmm. one place there, a Belgian waffle stand with an espresso bar. And lo and behold, other displaced uh, former Europeans, Ron and Russell Mail, also frequented the place. And we ended up sitting at the same table talking about movies. And we finally asked them to come see our group. And of course you, you knew who they were. Oh, I, I, yes. Yeah, I was yeah. extremely enamored of them. Less, not as much, but, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, they were both, you know, extremely literate, uh, very mm-hmm. modest, and and they loved film, and and we got on really well. Were they like approachable guys? Just to Be, come and they, talk in to this them? setting because this is their this was their like mid morning hangout, and it was for us too. It was very approachable, kind of. We both we ended up you know, sitting together and just talking about other stuff besides music too. But um, they were Anglophiles as well. And um, at that point, they, after they saw it, came and saw us, they had decided they had been in uh, the last two records they did were very studio based Mm -hmm. synthesizer heavy. And they had kind of, they wanted to change again and they wanted a band again, a kind of lively, you know, we were pretty, we were a rock band, very. Yeah. Yeah. Really well, but it was it was a powerful band. Right. And they kind of wanted that again. And for me, it was like, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, they were one of my favorite groups of all time. So yeah. of course I jumped out. Um, you know, just to you know, tip tip my hand here. Uh I uh, the, um a couple of the albums that you guys worked on, of course, uh oh uh, Womp That Sucker and Inks in My Pants, uh, those are two of my favorite sparks albums ever 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 
And I went back and listened to them over the last few days because I was like, you know, kind of gearing up for this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I realized that a big part of it was you're just going all out. And of course, some of that is Mac, right? Like he's pushing you to the front, but there was such a sense of raucous fun in those albums that was missing, certainly from, you know, what they had done uh, immediately before. And in my opinion, even what they had done at all. Oh, well, thanks very much. I mean, I'm very proud of those records. I, the two you mentioned are, I think they're really good because we learned those songs as five guys in a, in, in, in a rehearsal studio. They, Ron would have basic chord outline and maybe there was a vocal line and a yeah. title but there weren't lyrics yet even. So we, sure. when we learned them, I was, I tried all kinds of beats and uh, I mean, we learned we le- the parts we came up with, you know, they had final say obviously, but I mean, they were our parts. So it was, I, it, they were very band done. And I'm, I'm very proud of that work. Cause I, I, I think that's one of their best periods too. Those. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, hands down for me anyway. Uh, so like what- a lot of variety and beats and, and, moods and stuff and oh, ron would write and and to be able to record those in another country we recorded them in munich and we would do right. kind of one song at a time from beginning to end so we were all there the whole time you know it wasn't it wasn't like we caught all the basic tracks in a couple of days and then bye bye band it was kind of track by track we did it and ron at, at least in those days the night before Russell would sing the final lyrics. Ron wrote the words. It was, to me, it was the absolute opposite of like how I write songs. But I find for them too. Previously, I would think, yeah. But he, I don't know. He needed whatever the pressure (laughs) of the hours away deadline. But they're brilliant. I mean, great, great songs. So thank Uh, you for saying that. But no, absolutely, man. Like I've gotten so many so many hundreds of hours of joy from listening to those two records in in particular so like how do you think that they came upon like choosing you guys and as a whole group because you know previously they you know might audition you know a drum they had never done they had never done it in exactly this way before yeah honestly we owe it to the espresso machine at the farmer's market i'm telling you it was like we were introduced to each other in a, not in a club, whatever. It was this yeah. kind of friendly thing. And we got on, we, you know, we, we got along well. We had other interests. Ron is a serious collector of Arcana. Yeah. Everything, yeah. Everything. yeah. So all of that stuff was, you know, we related to. Um, and I guess it was, you know, it was like, yeah, the whole band was fine, so it was yeah. it was easy for them too, and they really wanted a shift from where I they. And it's just such great kismet. You guys were in the right place at the right yeah, time for, for sure. Did, now, when, when you started, when you started working with them, and if if I understand correctly, you did some live shows before you guys went into the studio in Munich and did new yeah, stuff. Just a few at the Whiskey here in Hollywood. Yeah. Whiskey, go go. Okay. Are you ready for the sex girls? The hot, hot, lean, hot, big, hot girls. Are you ready for the sex girls? The right, right, ultra vital, nice, nice girls. 
Was there any sort of moment where you felt that Ron and Russ were like, this is the sound we want. This is what we want to incorporate into our next couple of projects. I mean, did you get a sense of that? It seemed, well, yeah, I think, I mean, at first, I don't know that there was how long a period of time there was, but it definitely, they were, it was very refreshing for them to work with people, work up a song, and then that song exists. It wasn't just going to the studio and sure. cut some down on a synth. They were very pleased to go in with kind of worked out songs. So it was like, here it is. I mean, and obviously we recorded it that way too. We played live in the studio, everyone. And, you know, we... Uh, really? Yeah. Russell even would sometimes, you know, mime kind of nonsense words uh, during the yeah. basic recording but you know we had, there was a very specific arrangement and they didn't get changed too much we added a few parts uh there but uh mac got a heavy 
guitar and kind of trashy drum sound. I mean, I like the way those records. Okay. Sound. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely would. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Um, uh, first off, did once you started working with, with Ron and Russ, did you feel like that they were pushing you in a certain direction as, in terms of like how they wanted you to play? Or did they give you more freedom? It was a, a lot of freedom, really. Uh, I think they were very pleased, again, for this kind of arrangement with a, a, a band. I mean, there's, you know, we played as a group kind of coherently. So when we had a, a sound, it seemed to work. And a lot of the songs were more up-tempo and kind of pushed. And we could yeah. do that, you know? Yeah. Um, plus... The first record, this new kind of format was starting yeah. out here in L.A. This um, this K-Rock station was playing right. uh, uh, so-called new wave kind of stuff. with Some yeah. English groups and the Adam and the Ants and, you know, some synthy, but some guitar-y stuff. And yeah. they took to it immediately. So it was like it was getting played a lot in the hometown and it seemed people were connecting to it. Nice. And honestly, four or five songs from that record got a lot of play. So you could kind of hear it. It worked. It was like, this is on the radio. Yeah. Da, da, da. It was success, you know. Mm. So they. I'm sorry I missed that by a few years. Yeah. <laughs> well, we I was there a, little, a little bit later. Stayed with that setup and sound for a while. Um, so uh, when you guys were in Munich and the uh, uh, studios there uh, working with Mac, for you guys, especially you and, you know, Les and I guess, you know, Bob Haig, what was that experience like? Yeah. I mean, we had recorded, you know, I had done full records before, but, and recorded in good studios, but I mean, this is a setup that really, I don't know that it even exists in this day and age anymore where a band goes to another country to a very expensive studio and records there for five or six weeks, five weeks. Right. I mean, it's just, that's not the way it's done anymore, unfortunately, because yeah. I'm happy I got to experience that. Mac was, um, it was great with sound, and he, but he was yeah. kind of, he wasn't super pushy. He, but, it, and it was a studio, it was, Giorgio Moroder, it was his studio. Right. So he, right. he came in a few times and said hi, but it was oh, really, yeah. Cool. But he was floating around other places, but um, we were, it was still a production deal with Moroder for the first two records, I believe. Um, but Mac produced them both. And uh, the studio was, it was kind of happening at the moment. Um, mm. The Queen was coming yeah. in right now. The Rolling Queen. Stones were there. The yep. David Bowie under pressure thing. I mean, it was like, it was a good yeah, place. It was a world-class studio. And the setup, as I said, where we worked song by song, everyone was around the whole time. So it felt very band like, it, you know, more than just being a hired guy. It was those first two records were just like that, both the same studio and singing, same kind of recording setup. Uh, I've, 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 I've always been curious. I'm sorry, uh, because, you know, because uh, Mac, you know, of course, he was like all over, you know, in, in that era right there. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I went back and I listened to those those two Sparks records, you know, that we've been talking about there. And there's this loud, crashy sound. You got the gated drums 
you know, and of course, most of that is is you. Uh, but I don't know how much of that is is you know is is Mac, and and then I went and listened to some contemporaneous uh, uh, re- records from like Queen, and there's sort of that same sort of crashy gated sound. So I, I'm curious when I go back and I listen to those two records, how much of that sound not the not the playing but the sound was you know sort of influenced by by Mac or made by Mac. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, overall this, I mean, he, he, uh, it obviously influenced the sound. I can tell you one, one thing about that makes the snare drum the way it is. Uh, we recorded the tracks plan live. I mm-hmm. think we played to a click. So they were, the tempos were even, um, but then I overdubbed just a snare drum, a second, snare in a bathroom and it was all tile bathroom, incredibly loud bathroom so they're double hits so it gives it this kind of it kind of trashed it up a little in a good way but it, it added there was it was a lot of room reverb from all of this in the room so i think that had part to do with the sound for sure was that a i'm sorry what what song was that was that like the whole album. oh really Oh the yeah! Whole album. Yeah. Wow! Oh yeah! They're wow. all so cool. Yeah, yeah. We also like on the song upstairs. Uh, oh my god! Days, I was going to ask you about that one. Okay. Yes, go. That was um, we recorded another version of it first with whole different drum parts, and then they ended up ch- taking a loop of like two bars of the pattern. Okay. And I did more. Um, they wanted more kind of percussive, percussive thing. So I took wood blocks. They, okay, below the studio there was a unused uh, subway stop that was connected, and we I, we went out in that hallway and I banged on some pipes and huge pieces of wood against these tile walls for the sound. And, sound all right, love it. So and that was an ear splittingly loud subway room with headphones out there. Okay. Yeah. Well, I get to check that kind of thing. Do that. <laughs> I love that because because I was going to ask you about your uh, contributions percussion wise to uh, upstairs. And yeah. That off and okay. then wacky women. I suppose we might get to that. Recorded the album and uh, came back to. The states came back to LA, I suppose. What was going on then? Uh, because at that point, Sparks was signed on to I don't rem- remember honestly. It was a RCA distributed label. Uh, it was RCA in the states, and a uh, uh, yeah, it was a couple of different di- distributors, different parts of the country, of uh, parts of the world. Um, the record d- did not a lot in England. It was mm-hmm. kind of overlooked and but this new radio format in the u.s picked up on it and we and we kind of ran with it and weirdly at the same time my other project gleaming spires the first song also fit into that format and both bands kind of had got a lot of play at the same time and that whole period Mm -hmm. les and i were kind of going back and forth between the two groups for five years uh 
So, I mean, how 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 much help do you think that uh, K Rock uh, was in uh, getting you guys to uh, uh, wider audiences? Oh, it was it was it was almost entire. I mean, it's it launched it. There was um for Sparks that was a a, a new format that really attracted really young kids right away, and there were that. That was not just LA. There was a station like that in San Diego and uh, San Francisco and other places in the country. Uh, modern, the rock of the eighties or whatever. It had different names, but um, it it caught on right away and it lasted through a couple of couple of the records. Uh, I mean, really, that helped significantly. And then, as did TV for Sparks. They're obviously a very visual thing and. You know, we did a lot of television, Solid Gold and uh, American Bandstand and Saturday Night Live and mm -hmm. live performance shows as well. We did a number of them. So it, you know, it had a that a must have been time. that it must was, have been amazing. It was great. It was <laughs> just extremely busy time. Yeah. Bleeding Spires. You know, when, when, when I listen to those records, you guys are so in your elements and it's such a developed and purposeful sound and also that you know less just seems like such a natural front man i guess i've got two questions one was you know how did you or how did he how did you guys all feel about taking a back seat to ron and russ on their projects and my next question is how did you find the opportunity to actually cut your first Gleaming Spires record after that. Okay. Well, as to the first thing, I mean, we were offered a chance to join a band that I admired greatly, go to Europe, make a record, and tour the world. So it was like, it wasn't too hard to say sure. yes to that. I mean, honestly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was extremely flattering and like it was fantastic. Um, and simultaneously to that, after, after we did the first record and came back, Les and I started, we, it kind of came to a realization, you know, that, look, we're going to be in this group and we need to write songs that are just kind of what we, we want to write about. And we kind of, you know, Bates Motel was great, but it was a guitar-based drum band and we kind of wrote to fit that setup. Christian girl's problems in a public place A Christian girl 
Les and I, at least subject-wise, with Spires, we would write about whatever affected us, whether it was a dystopian science fiction thing, sexual angst, uh, film kind of related songs, or something humorous, or you know, pop culture appropriation, which we did a lot of. Mm. And so we we combined all that stuff and worked with this guy Steve Haig to demo them out. And Hague, not related to not related about <laughs> spelling. Okay. Right. Hague, I think Les knew from another group. Uh, he was a played in a group, Jewels and the Polar Bear or something. Anyway, he had a studio in his house and was able to record these songs. Les and I at that point thought maybe those were demos and still we were going to get a traditional big label deal. And then when we were rehearsing with Sparks, we sent, so we sent out the demo yeah. and this guy, Bobby Fields from a local punk rock label that mostly yeah. punk geared came up to us and said, I love this. And we were like, well, great. You know, maybe we can get a record deal. And he says, no, no, no. I love this, these, this version of these songs. And he said, and what's more like, I, I want to put this out like in a month. Like, I'm going to put this out right away. And wow. Last night, wow. We, we were used to like, oh, we're thinking a major deal. Then it was a year of negotiate. You know, it's somewhere down the road, maybe it would happen. So the fact that it was so immediate and liked just the way it was after we said, we're going to try just to do something we 
you know, not trying to fit it into anything. It was like, great. I mean, do it. Yeah. And, and he put out the, the Sex Girls song was on a Rodney on the Rock compilation. Mm-hmm. And Rodney was on this, also on this K-Rock station at the time. And literally when we were in Europe doing the second record is when it came out, the album came out and it was suddenly all over the radio. And it was literally, mm. it wasn't <laughs> us promoting it. It was people liking the song. So we were like, my God, this is like the way it should be. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so did the K-Rock also help you guys get? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It all was right. yeah. Rodney playing the song and then K-Rock like getting the record and going, yeah, we, you know, kids yeah. like this kind of thing. Oh yeah, if, no, it was those guys big time. Yeah. If there's one song that anyone has ever heard from the Gleaming Spires and they've heard of the Gleaming Spires, it's a are you ready for the Sex Girls? So yeah, yeah. how did that how did the song and how did the video come about? Because I listened to it and it's like, ah, sounds like something that you know some uh, asshole would say at a party sometime. Are you ready for the sex girls? Uh so I'm, I'm, I'm you know, if you I, only hear that, if you only hear the title, you would think that, and then it, it's a pretty subversive song in a way. It is after, if you listen. Yeah. So again, it's like what we had in mind. It was a little cultural appropriation. There, there was a version of a, a title of that that was in a, a newspaper out here, and we kind of thought of these sort of I don't know nerdy guys that were kind of basically almost af- afraid of Amazonian women and not kind of clear in their role as men. And uh, we kind of took it from there. So it was a little humorous, but it was like the, their version of women is a invented fictive narration. So, uh, but we did it, couched it in a very catchy line and it's actually kind of sad and desperate, but yeah. and the song has many, many parts. So we really didn't think it was going to be like the song at all, but well, it doesn't, Extremely catchy chorus, and and the video yeah. really did it for me. Yeah, as well, yeah. and then it had, it had a whole second life in in film. It was in several uh, movies of the time. So yeah, it's the radio play and and being in uh, Revenge of the Nerds and that has given it this whole life. So when it came to time to do the video, it was we wanted to do the antithesis of what a horrible. 80s bikini girl video could be and right. i loved make, baking pies and yes. we had, we knew some art student friends that had access to a uh kind of cooking show set and so we thought what better song is yeah. sex girls without any girls <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. No, and, and, it, and it comes across as this like great subversion of like you know well, gender you. roles you know you know, which is kind of weird for the time, um, you know, and, and I really appreciated that a lot. Uh, uh, not everyone got it, but in, in the hindsight <laughs> of history, it seems like when people write about early videos and that, if people sort of get what was going on now. So, For sure, for sure, for sure. Uh, did you guys spend a lot of time with Gleaming Spires before you buckled back up and uh, got back to work in the studio with uh, Ron and Russ for angst? Well, again, as you know, I mean, even they did liner notes on the first album, encouraging, you know, the band and and liked it. What we ended up doing was using the four of us uh, as Gleaming Spires. 
So everyone was available. I mean, Sparks had precedent kind of, I mean, like if there was a tour, obviously we were going to do the tour. So we, it was hard in hindsight. I mean, Spires never got to do a whole cross country tour timing wise. There were issues, but all four of us were available at the same time when Sparks wasn't, uh, you know, in going. Uh, so literally we were able to turn around in a day or two from finishing a Sparks tour to start doing Spire stuff. Yeah. The, one interesting version where I was looking, when we were doing these uh, re-releases, I was looking at my calendars, which I've kept through the years, which was helpful of shows. And there is literally, um, Sparks playing at this kind of good sized place called the Palladium here in Los Angeles, I think maybe on a Tuesday. And then on Thursday, and a group Talk Talk was on Sparks at the Palladium. And then two days later, Talk Talk were doing a show at a smaller club, and Gleaming Spires were opening up for them. Wow. We we could turn quickly. So, so you you guys, well, obviously, you were doing like, you know, twice as much work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they were very busy years. I mean, looking at the work, it was kind of like, wow, <laughs> we were doing a lot. I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about your um, your drumming, um, particularly on those uh, couple of albums uh, by Sparks. Um, so, of course, you know, it, it, anyone, you know, who had been listening to Sparks for, you know, whatever, since their their inception, uh, you know, the, the, whoever they employ as a drummer has their own thing. And, um, and when, when those guys switched over from the Marauder stuff to, you know, bringing you guys on there suddenly was this huge crashing, um, uh, snare heavy, simple, heavy, uh, sound. Was that something that they were asking for or that something that you just did naturally that just, just worked? I think it was pretty natural. Um, as I said, at the time they were kind of re-energized by playing with a group again. A lot of the songs were up tempo and, you know, we were a rock band and they were wanting a rock band. I mean, it just kind of worked. Uh, I, I, there's a lot of kind of more unusual drum beats and, and, yes. and stuff turns around. And I mean, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff. And again, it was song by song. We were given a great deal of freedom to, to, to work our way around the thing. I think just overall for me as a drummer, one thing, maybe that makes me a little distinctive because there's certainly a lot of people that are technically, you know, I'm no Max Roach certainly or Billy Cobham or something, but I, I write lyrics as well. And I think seeing kind of all elements of a song rather than just playing like to the bass guitar, I think Mm -hmm. it gives me a a little more distinctive approach to to drawing uh it's not when, just when i listen to those albums it seems like what you're doing kind of has a life of its own well thanks I, um and it's not you know it's you're just kind of doing your own thing and, and in a way that really works and is frankly su- surprising for anyone you know who heard you know sparks just before that uh i i, I wrote down the the uh, titles of a few songs that okay. really stuck out for me in terms of your drumming and we are we talked about upstairs 
Uh, Wacky Women was another one where your drumming really stood out to me. Definitely pushed up to the front. Do you have any particular memories of doing that? Yeah, well, first of all, that turned into a really great live song, uh, you know, playing it live. It was a, um, it was kind of two, two different drum parts. There was the, uh, the, the um, rolling tom part, the boom, gab, boom, and then yeah. there was kind of this herky jerk, yes. wacky women part, because I was kind of toying off the word wacky i kind of like and i gave it a, a jerk it's a little bit wacky if you will uh but it, it had it had a the whole song just has a lot of drive it's it's more repetitious than some of their songs but it i it just had this straight drive that i kept giving hiccups yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the drive is there uh and then on the next album uh i wrote down angst in my pants and i wrote in parentheses upstairs uh i think it's was there a drum pattern? Yeah, that's actually, that's pretty good. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, Angst in My Pants pattern was, I think, part of Upstairs, slowed down and heavily affected. Oh, okay, okay, interesting. And then I've got the Decline and Fall of Me. Uh, Did some that, crazy that probably, stuff on that one. That is probably one of the weirdest beats I have ever been allowed to do in a group i mean it's it's backwards and the 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 turnaround in the instrumental section is it's pretty fucked up it's pretty great <laughs> for sure man yeah yeah there's yeah. a reason why that one like you know stands out i guess and the last one that i got here is uh eaten by the monster of love yeah that that one mac really went over the top heavy gated affected drums that was, and that was all of us singing on it, by the way. That was... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, me, Les, Bob, everyone was singing the part. That was really fun. That was actually a very fun moment there, too. There, even um, there was another song. Uh, in Tips for Teens, there's like a breakdown where there's this whole murmuring crowd, and it was just us kind of yelling and screaming in the studio. But those albums are very alive. I think that's the thing. They're Totally, man. Not, all the same kind of they're all driving but it's not the same kind of setup yeah. each song and but they're just electric and alive and it, i yeah. totally agree those those two are two of my all-time favorites so you know after you guys worked on those albums and I, you toured with them and you guys got to do some cool shit like you went on snl which must have been amazing uh with danny devito introducing you yeah. if i Remember that correctly? He's seen us a number of times. I mean, he was he was a he's a big music guy, and but he liked Sparks. So, oh, really? He really did. Yeah. No, he. Yeah, he went to shows a lot. So, yeah. When you got to that point, when you and and your buds, you know, with Ron and Russ, are are playing Saturday Night Live and doing all these other um, uh, TV shows, was there ever a point when you? We're afraid that this might end soon. Is, yeah. How long can this last? Yeah, uh, I think first couple of years, no. And then the change kind of came um, when we started on the third record. This thing called the Lim Drum Machine came into the world and oh, everyone yes. thought they could program drums. And so everything got kind of simple and it boomed at boom, 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 boom. And they ended up 
demoing their songs with that and ended up liking that approach. And so I just added cymbals and hi-hats and rolls over a beat, essentially. So maybe, but live, it was still a very live band. So maybe that was the point where I thought maybe my role was going to be shifting. Um, the big change kind of was later records where they, uh, one thing is Ron Russell will never do the same thing for too long. They'll always mm. shift something up. And yeah, it's, yeah. It seems like they'll never go more than two records in a row, kind of in the same kind sure. of place. So, and so they've switched to like just voices as all the instruments or whatever. So, and they're not all successful, frankly. I mean, I don't oh, think yeah. everyone, anyone likes every single Sparks album, but that's, it's part of, they just, they look ahead and, well, you, you know, know you, you, you spend 54 but, years doing your thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, I'm like, I honestly think I was involved in one of their finest moments. So I'm totally. really pleased. Totally. And it stayed a live group for a while. And by the end, there was no longer even electric guitar by 86. Mm. Last tour we did, it just didn't have the kind of energy yeah. I thought was required. And I think people kind of thought, I mean, those records weren't as popular. So I don't know. So but, we left. Yeah. I didn't leave till they stopped performing. Then they got into another project, a musical they were going to do with Tim Burton. And they mm. tried it for years. And maybe yeah. at some level, that was kind of maybe a, a low point yeah. for them. But anyway. So they they kept you on um, from 83 to 86, I guess, mostly for a Yeah, yeah performances and i guess you still contributed a few things yeah, yeah. regardless of like the heavy use of lynn drums and yeah. later on they probably did the fairlight and all that sort of stuff yeah, yeah they the change was you know up until then they always had to go into a studio and someone else ran everything and then it was kind of russell getting a little more tech savvy um mm. you know, and they were able to do a little more themselves and yeah. you know kind of ended up in that place you know to some degree russell's got the studio set up in their house and, and sure. his house and you know they yeah. kind of stayed with that did they keep the other guys on did, did they keep uh less and and oh, less less left first uh we had different bass players on the uh uh last two records i did uh -huh. and they got another keyboard guy uh and by the time last like two years or something i was the only guy from angst and and tips for teens yeah uh, a guy named john thomas came in as a second keyboard and we had different different bass player hans and there was no guitar at all on on live on the last tour right which interesting really yeah. affected hmm. you know earlier songs i thought but you were you were still there during live performances during that yeah. period they they still kept uh, yeah, and we were still going back and forth with gleaming spires up to 85 or so right so right. you i i assume you you guys had more time to work on gleaming spires since yeah. your services weren't you know asked yeah. for as much from from as far as and actually towards towards the end maybe 85 and 86 i i had started an inroad which turned into a devo uh there was this group called visiting kids that was uh i got involved in that was Bob Mother's Boss, side Bob Devo were in a break period then. Mm. And the crossover thing was this visiting kids. It was actually real little kids singing 
songs about trilobites and things. One song I'd written for him. And Mark Mothersbaugh's girlfriend at the time was kind of the, the uh, den mother, I guess, of the band. Mm-hmm. And Bob, Bob One was playing guitar and his daughter was in the group. So I got them to open up for Sparks for a show. And you yeah, know, Mark, open for Sparks. Yeah. And Mark, you know, came and I think he saw me play in that. And that was, you know, I was involved in a lot of crossover things with Devo. So that was one of my little inroads into getting that show. So that was another one of those kind of moments where it seemed like, you know, destiny and timing is all has a play in, in a music <laughs> career. Did Mark know you or know your work? He knew yeah, yeah. for that matter. He knew Sparks, and by then he knew of Gleaming Spires. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hit it off because we we're both collectors and into art. And my wife was an artist, and they even shared a studio. Uh, you know, and Mark liked. Uh, you know, I collected all kinds of oddball stuff, condom packaging art and stuff. Uh-huh. So we, you know, <laughs> Very specific. Yeah. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> um, yeah. So basically, as long as Sparks were touring and doing things, I, I stayed with them. And the, yeah. the last things we did was go into Europe for a couple of weeks, just Ron and Russell and me. And we just did. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And they must have had a lot of faith in you. Well, I mean, we... I mean, I'm, come on. It's pretty weird. Yeah, like, they don't keep people around. No, that's true. That I think long. I've had one of the longest yeah. tenures of anyone with the group. Yeah. Yeah. Six years yeah. or so. Yeah. Interesting. And that was, you know, even like well past the point when they had kind of eschewed, you know, most live instrumentation. So, A lot. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So going the other way, um, yeah. it seemed like, you know, Mark and, uh, uh, Devo, uh, Mark, Mark Mothersbaugh and Jerry Casale and all those guys wanted to go back to a more organic drum sound. That's yeah, absolutely true. That was what made me want to do it too, is I had seen Devo like their earliest visits to this small club called the Starwood out here. And those shows were just physical they weren't big productions it was really raucous rocky very interesting drumming but it was sweaty guy you know it was really mm. this live playing and frankly for my taste they had, had lost that for a while again they went into the drum machine period i knew that and alan got so disgruntled he kind of dropped out of the picture and devo took a break and in that break is when i was doing sessions were with Bob Casali doing the visiting kids with Bob Juan and Mark. And so, you know, they knew me from a number of different things. And really when they were going to start up again, I did not want to do it unless it was going to be actually physically playing. Shake! 
So it was actually real drums again, a couple of Simmons pads, but it was, it was back kind of to earlier elements where it was just five guys in a uniform doing the job. It wasn't a huge, you know, there were no Ferris wheels, (laughs) you know, no big production value, but I, to me, that was what I liked about them from the beginning. So. I mean, you went from one legendary band to another. Uh So, I mean, that, you know, a kismet or something. I mean, so I mean, no, like, I, I, yeah, I mean, I've had moments in music. Yeah. I've played with two of the most like forward looking, eccentric, mm. interesting groups in rock for sure. From one set of brothers to two sets of brothers. Exactly. I would say. <laughs> exactly. 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 Uh, did you have much of a, uh, an influence in uh, those, I guess, two Devo records that you worked on? Yeah, well, especially, yeah. I mean, again, it was, you know, I would, there was some existing stuff on Total Devo. Some of the tracks had been worked to some degree. So, but I was playing live to to other sounds. You know, they, it was a mix track by track on yeah. that one. Because they had their own studio at that point. Yeah, right? their own studio. We cut that one at their own studio. Um, and then we did a live album, which was, all the drums were live from one night at a palace show here. And then we did one more studio album. The one I'm most proud of really is the smooth Smooth little maps. And again, that was all live drum playing. I think there's one with a a pattern, Um, but it was, you know, all my patterns and and, uh, a lot, it was live playing again. That record was doomed because the label sort of folded a month after it came out right we were in europe on tour with it and the label went under so yeah it was kind of writing on the wall at that time yeah. and mark was starting to get work in commercials and stuff and it's right. like tv shows and whatever and movies and i i stayed with mutato initially and wrote for tv yeah, shows so for how did that with come about so you just like transitioned from just being a Devo member to working at uh, Mutaro? To some degree. And then I, again, I didn't get into it, but all, all this time, I mean, I, I would play in other projects and other groups as well. But yeah, I, uh, I was a lyricist and, and some of the shows I worked on mm-hmm. required writing like minute long songs. There was a Disney one called Adventures in Wonderland. I wrote probably 60 or 70 minute long songs for and the characters would act them out in the show and you know they were all alice in wonderland characters uh and live at live action so oh that's great yeah well how was it uh, working at the the studio there was was mark uh heavily involved was he very much at first yeah um i did we also did commercials it was kind of i was it was kind of a small in-house group at first we did we would do TV shows, then score, score, and then Mark started underscoring Rugrats, mm-hmm. and some of the other shows were done by his brother. And I did was one of the right workers on the Adventures in Wonderland and a couple others. Uh, Beekman's World. There were a few. Oh my God! He did Beekman's World. You did Beekman's yeah, World. I did a half dozen of those too. I grew up with that stuff, man. Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> and then he got more and more into that, and Devo was gone for many years. Uh, yeah. And then I kind of fell out of Mutato, but um, I hooked up with Devo live shows again in the mid-2000s. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. 
Did you ever hear their uh, album that they uh, came out with about 10 years or so ago? I didn't have anything to do with that. But I mean, I did three records with Devo, so. I know you've worked on films. You have contributed um, songs or music to do films. Are there any particular ones that stand out? In films, a lot of stuff has been used, you know, that were existing Spire songs. Um, I've been in a few things. We Devo, we were in in a film as actors. Gleaming Spires was in a film called School Spirit as a band. Um, I've actually done some scoring uh, with various directors, uh, actual scoring. And then, you know, small things as actors in various bands, not so much recently. But I've done a lot of other bands uh, and played with a lot of other people, not like Andy Preboy for many years, kind of a, I've had a studio for the old wall of voodoo singer. Um, I have a group of my own called the empire of fun that has done many studio projects, kind of um, concept albums, if you will, about criminals, fictitious islands, science fiction stories. I have that in my notes. I was going to ask you about empire of fun. Um, Yeah. So what's that about? Generally. There was a core, my, myself and a singer I actually knew in Chicago, clear tenor voice, a guy named Steve Summers, one of my favorite writing partners. I've had a few great writing collaborations over the years, Lass and Steve, and I play in a psychedelic band now called Revolution. There's a guy named Frank in that group. But Gleaming, uh, but um, Empire of Fun has kind of been, we've done about eight records and it's, it's really studio project and it needs to get out there more and hopefully will um i kind of do i go on tangents and i kind of explore and i invent islands and all the reasons people would go to various places for and do a whole record about it various criminals and psychopaths would have all different voice singers do the voicings on that including russell mail oh great Um, i've done and then um I've done other ones that were kind of a, a fictive um, sort of H.P. Lovecraft pastoral horror uh, story called Eon. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of those, a whole kind of more psychedelic version of the science fiction future. So there's a lot of those there. That's not as well known, but that's out there. And I, I play, I've done a lot of other records with some singer songwriters and things where I think my talents as a, drummer that just does a little more than just keep time here and there uh, have worked pretty well. So, I mean, I don't know, even all my like Wikipedia stuff only lists about, it seems like half of what I've actually done. I've never assembled it all somewhere. So there's Amen. a lot. Right. I, I've, I've interviewed some of these folks who don't even have a Wikipedia. <laughs> your, <laughs> your head and shoulders above them and yeah. des- deservedly show. Uh, so, um, what's going on with the uh, Leaning Spires? I, I know you guys are re-releasing that uh, some old stuff, and I yeah, suppose yeah. Uh, re- yeah. remastering. We talked about that a little bit earlier. These three are going to come out, and um, we're going to do. Our, I'm doing, you know, as much as I can to promote it. I hope they're going to get kind of a new uh, link to uh, new generation of people. There's a lot of a it, lot of Devo fans. I do these things called devotionals uh, where Devo fans assemble. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be doing that later this year. So talking about 
this period. I mean, I have to say there's a lot of crossover. Yeah. Devo and Sparks, both unusual bands, oh. buyers too. So a lot of people that like one, like right. them all. Well, they'll be like almost everything we've ever done will be out there. Yeah. And, and that's one thing that follows into uh, the Empire of Fun. There's a core of Steve and I, but we'll have maybe 12 different people. We've had brilliant players from Nels Klein, all kinds of amazing guitar players and singers and voices uh, on records up to a 12 or 15 different people track by track. And that started in Spires where if we needed bagpipes, you know, we if mm-hmm. bagpipes seemed appropriate, mm-hmm. we'd find a bagpipe player or cello or whatever. We kind of didn't limit ourselves to just like the guitar, bass, drums kind of trio, which I love, by the That's way. Right. But yeah. It's like, yeah, it, it's interesting <laughs> to me also because the stuff that you guys did was had uh, much heavier, was much more electronic, had much heavier use of synthesizers and was less rocky than what you guys were doing with uh, uh, Sparks at that time, it seemed to me. Yeah, this, the second two Spires albums were more band-oriented, which was kind of maybe where we thought the first one was going to be as well. Um, hi. But um, yeah, we were, I mean, Spires, yeah, there is more keyboard bass for sure, but there was a lot of rock energy in it to it. But again, it, it the job was to suit the song. It was like to not fit songs into yeah. a format of the band, but the band to fit format of the songs. And that was kind of the strategy starting with Spires. And that's kind of what I used in, in uh, Empire Fun for the most part. If it requires different lead voices, we'll do it. There's my cat. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, 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 you know. I've got my kitties over here too. They oh, do great. Okay. Oh, I she like looks a good profile. We're cat people, me and my wife. Oh, she uh, usually makes an appearance in these. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, you know, I, I really, I mean, I love drumming and I'm also a writer and I feel both things yeah. are so important. And at this stage of my life, I also, I want to work with musicians that I also admire as people and that are have many other interests. Yeah. Uh, which brings one other current thing I'm doing is this group very experimental group called Shushu, XIU, XIU. And I'm playing with them as well. And hopefully next year touring with them. What do they do? Pardon? What do they do? Shushu. Um, They've done about 10 records. Very, this Jamie Stewart is kind of the main guy. Very experimental sound washes, a lot of percussion, a lot of synths, a lot of, anguish and soul searching and darkness but um very lush gorgeous melodies as well uh one of the last ones i just added a song to was music all the music from the twin peaks series oh wow they're worth looking into xiu xiu it's kind of a different world and i'm yeah works on some of my things and i'm happy to throw in what i can in in that world as well great source material for sure uh, so I um, I had promised some Sparks fans okay. that I would field some questions. Yeah, that I hadn't gotten to uh, okay. thus far. Um, so uh, from Rude Swart, you may know him. Uh, he asked. He said, "Ask David about the uh, angst in my pants outtake called No Nut or One Nut." What's that? Called, yeah, actually, the one nut, I think there was a, we worked up a few songs that didn't really get the full treatment 
And yeah. one knot was basically yeah. the, the hook line was one knot is all it takes. And it was a, I don't know what the full subject was going to be, but there was a whole music. And I think at the time we cut a version, but um, I think they just thought it was another, yet yeah, just another up-tempo song, but it was a great song. And that one nut is all it takes was one of the finest uh, choruses, I think, that Sparks ever had. <laughs> so I wish that existed. Robert uh, Nailpop asked, did Mike Curb ever personally go to a Sparks show? I don't think I know Mike Curb. Oh, he was the president of MCA uh, Records uh, when uh, Music You Can Dance To came out. That's a very good question. I actually had a connection with Mike Curb in Continental Miniatures, because he worked with Michael Lloyd, the producer. And uh, I do not know if he ever did. Interesting. That's a good question. I've never, I don't think I've ever met him. So, from that same individual, we have, uh, <laughs> you might know this, possibly. When did, uh, when did Ron start doing his dance in uh, live performances? You know, he does that. Well, Ron dance. He, yeah. Um, he started, there was a striptease first in I Predict. <laughs> he went down to his t-shirt and then that kind of evolved into sort of more of a vaudeville dance. But I think as far as I know, that started uh, with the first album or second album with uh, Angst of My Pants tour. Nice. We did a very extensive club tour of the States where he, that's where he started doing it. And then that stayed throughout the Rick Springfield tour. That stayed in the. In oh the, my gosh. Okay. The, that was another question on here okay. that I forgot to add, actually. Rick, Spring, uh, Rick Springfield, you guys opened for Rick Springfield? Or yes. Okay. He, all right. That, the height of Sparks Radio time was that Cool Places single, which got to the top right. four. And Rick Springfield liked Sparks. He, and he asked, us to be on the tour and it was like Meadowlands, uh, Madison Square Garden. We played those size places all across. I can't the imagine there would be like that much overlap in the audiences. Well, that was a funny time. I mean, they were, he was guitar. He just liked Sparks. Uh, we yeah. seemed to go, he had a pretty young audience. We seemed to go over really well, but it was weird. I mean, you're, you're playing a half hour set basically as people are pretty much coming in it was sort of strange at times but we went over fine but yeah. with months and months we were on the tour and uh anyway ron kept up the dance in that part no. but as soon as you know he had big time managers and as soon as we weren't top 40 anymore i think <laughs> at a point we got booted off the tour for somebody else so we never went to japan no. and places with him but oh damn well, but they, we were all, we were all there. Yeah. Uh, sorry, interrupt. Uh, so I've got uh, Stuart uh, Avis asks, "How the hell did David come up with the drum pattern for the decline and fall of me?" It's bonkers. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know what inspired me to to do the the bat. I think again, I'm probably playing off the lyric, "The decline and fall of me." Like everything was backwards or reversed. I wanted it to be in sync, but sound as messed up and out of sync as it could. And once I kept had the, the backwards drum beat going, um, 
I guess I kept that mode going into, into the Tom Tom thing. It was very tricky to play and to come out in the right place. And I'm forever grateful for them to <laughs> letting me do that on, on, on a song because it's, it's pretty unusual, yeah, I, I will say. But I think it suits the song just fine. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no doubt. Uh, speaking of Rick Springfield, Patrick Hawks Reed asks, are there any interesting stories from that tour? Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a huge, this, I mean, it was another world for me. It was, they were a band that traveled with multiple tour buses and gear in semi trailers. And you went from, arena to arena and often you weren't even like downtown so it was you could live in a totally uh, fictitious world you could never see no. the light of day everything was done for you every meal was catered i mean at some level you could see getting used to it and at some level you felt so removed from reality it was kind of strange i felt after you know, we were done by eight thirty every night, and I, really? I I really felt the urge to because oh, you were opening, yeah, yeah, because we were opening, uh, you know. And after we had seen him, he was nice enough, but I mean, there was a just you know, you were kind, of, it was kind of the same show over and over and over again, sure. and it was set up to be that way for like nine months. It got kind of unreal after a while. We we felt the need to go into towns and and you. Do we go to a club or just see, you know, see other real people? But we did get to meet fans and go out and sign T-shirts and stuff. So, um, well, you know, how far misbehave to a degree, but all in good fun, I guess. For sure. Like, how far did you guys go on that tour? I we did about six months with them, I think, before. But quite like, a while. geographically, like oh, pretty much everywhere in the United States except the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and then we did all the LA shows. We did six or eight nights play, you know, multiple places uh, here in LA. And then honestly, we did, you know, uh, the Omni, Meadowlands, Spectrum. I mean, every huge place in everywhere in the United States. So, and I had kind of never done too much of that before. So <laughs> that was weird. You had two more, man. Okay. Uh, thanks for uh, sticking with me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's see here. We have any tales to share from playing in Andy Preboy's White Trash Wins Lotto, and will a recording of that ever be released? Oh man, John I, Dunbar. Okay, John. Hi, thanks for that question. Um, <laughs> the recordings exist. They were recorded on this format called ADATS, which is preposterous everything has been transferred the th the whole thing with that show it was it was a musical and it was going to be a broadway show andy wrote the songs first and we did it live with comedians basically playing all the parts so it was very it was hilarious and it started it was just andy and me were the only musicians so it was andy and and me and then 15 comedian voices. So it was like vocal choirs and stuff. So we did runs of it in Los Angeles, New York. We did Aspen. We did a couple places and we recorded everything. And then it was going to be an actual musical. The problem was Andy got the record deal, I think, 
before involving Broadway producers. And that, mm-hmm. turned, about, that turned into a big no-no, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, it literally kind of got, certain people didn't want to, it's like they weren't going to get a cut of the, you know, the soundtrack album. It was, anyway, it was, we can't go back. The recordings do exist. We didn't know how to do that, you know, Andy. So it never got to Broadway. And um, I don't know what's going to happen to those recordings. I would love for those to exist because those songs are hilarious and brilliant. And I love Andy Mm -hmm. to this day. And we still record and there's so much Andy stuff out there. But I don't know. I mean, as far as I know, Universal owns a a chunk of that. So I really don't know. Hmm. Well, you know, Sparks just did a musical, you know, uh, know, get that, get on the horse. Andy, listen, do you hear that? (laughs) You hear that, Andy? Come on, get on it. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Two more. Uh, Michael Kern, were there any songs from the back catalog, he means Sparks, that were difficult to play in concert? Of spark songs, yes. Um, for me, it was like the harder the better. I wanted I wanted to play hospitality and on parade, which, to my knowledge, I don't think they'd ever played live before. Really, and I got to do it a couple of times. Um, no, I mean I loved. Uh, I like love dinky quirky, stuff. Yeah, I love quirky drum beats. Uh, I wanted to do whippings and apologies even and i oh, they they didn't they, at that point they did not want to touch anything from the first two albums so yeah um and then very soon after we started playing with them i mean sparks were like a brand new band almost everyone that liked them in the period i was in i mean there were people that knew them from before but cool places and stuff it was a young brand new audience so right. at that point they stayed just with those years and now, you know, these days, again, they'll play songs from all the way oh, through. Yeah. They were like a brand new band at that point. Yeah. Um, but no, nothing was, I love tricky meters. I mean, that's why I love playing in Devo too, you know, Blockhead. and, and They did have some pretty weird meters in their early days. Oh, yeah, yeah anyway, for sure. Like- and I do a few odd ones in, I drop beats. And one thing I love doing just drum-wise as long as it doesn't interfere with the vocal line, I love playing yeah. through a, a bar into the next bar and ending like two beats further in. And it can be very jarring at times, uh, and, but I love doing that kind of stuff. What do I have? One more. Oh, okay. here it is. So I am thinking about doing a spinoff series about Gleaming Spires albums. Could I possibly get you to come on this show for those episodes? I'd be more than happy to. Is this That's the right yeah. answer. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, awesome, man. Oh, gosh. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your time, man. Uh, David, I've been looking forward to this for, it sounds crazy, but like 20 years. Uh, I, I've, been, I've been following your stuff for, for a long, long time. First Devo and then... Uh, and then Sparks. Then, of course, I got into Gleaming Spires. And uh, I just uh, thank you so much for all the, the joy that you've brought me and other fans of the music that you uh, helped create, man. Oh, you're more than welcome. And I want to thank everyone, too, that just had questions or is you know interested in following this. And I would suggest I, Empire of Fun stuff is kind of harder to find, but there's a site and, and 
many of those things exist and there's box set of stuff. So seek it out if you can find it. Uh, Thanks so much. For all all right. And have a great night and stay Thanks. safe. Well, I, I um, started playing with them. Uh, I knew um, Bob too, uh, socially, and I played uh, with a group called Visiting Kids, which was at the time Mark's girlfriend, Nancy Ferguson, and genuine little kids, including Bob One's uh, daughter. And uh, just, they were on, Diva was on hiatus at that time I, from, after like 84 to 86 or so. And uh, so I was just pals and around their studio a lot, recorded a lot of stuff at the Devo studio out in Marina Del Rey. And when they decided to uh, become a real band again, I, there I was, kind of. So, uh, you know, we got, we got along. We had a lot of art interest and, and collector interest and a lot of stuff sort of in common and, and a sh shared view of, many elements that make up this planet and uh, so we did that they signed to Enigma and did a couple records and I joined up Alan was just not interested in playing music anymore and I guess he's an electrician these days so so it still deals with power anyway but um that was it essentially uh, I was you know I, they had seen me play in a couple groups and I'd worked with Bob one uh, in uh, visiting kids. <laughs> now, so we did a, a couple of records at the studio and uh, a couple tours, Europe and U.S. And uh, when that deal was over, it kind of stopped stopped being active again. And uh, but I did was still working at Mutato on stuff and uh, got involved in other bands. So everyone else, ex with the exception of Jerry, ended up working. Uh, Mutato Musica started more uh, doing more shows and films. And in the early days, I actually wrote for a number of TV shows and stuff there too. Uh, and then I got involved in other bands. Once it stopped being a live, a live enterprise, uh, wasn't as uh, wasn't as active for me. Uh, and then for I don't know ten gigs or so over a couple of years, Josh Freeze ended up drumming and. Um, I'm doing it again I'm in the last couple of years again so and you know hopefully well from now on I don't know I mean Mark seems reticent you know it's, I don't know if it's it's never going to be a full-time band again at this point so it's last summer we did one just one local show and the two festivals in two festival shows in Japan which was pretty good and really really coherent and well organized and played okay I mean each time we play it's everyone we need to warm up for a couple days and it seems to fall into place easily so. the show was good because it was a it was it was a mix of, of all the I don't know seemingly relevant bands of today and then groups that were popular in Japan before uh, so it was a great it was a great mix and uh, they just it was very organized very together so it made I don't know. It was effortless in that in that respect. It went pretty well. I think the shows went well. Um, they were. Uh, it was a great. I mean, it's it's young kids. I don't. It was interesting. And there's no new records or anything. But it's this cyclical nature of 
music stuff, uh, it seems like if you know wanted to, Devo could end up being a a presence again. Um, you know, it's certainly it grew way way more popular just the last summer shows size-wise than uh, the club days. You know, so it can come back around and mutate again. But yeah. But they were good. I mean, just now. I mean, there's the the live stuff concentrates more on earlier earlier material now and does the old. In my days, we had each album was different different costumes and uh, so never did never got to wear the uh, yellow suits before. So this is, that was the first time. So that was good. And they're they're hot. They're uh, masters of the most uncomfortable stage gear, uh, stage wear, known to man. Yeah, you're back there working hard on that. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's probably good, unless you got anything else okay. to say about Japan or Devo or... Um, nothing, nothing too specific. I just hope we keep, keep carrying on, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, something each, each year. Uh, and I think we will. Cool. So, all right, guys.